courageous, okay? Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, <clears throat> the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and the, to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. <clears throat> As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of a good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. We hear that again a second time. That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. <clears throat> this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, and then you will make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. Third time, have I not commanded you, be strong and of a good courage, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you, wherever you go. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people saying, pass through the camp, command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourself. For within three days, you will cross over this Jordan to go in to possess the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke saying, remember the word which Moses, the servant of God commanded you saying, the Lord your God is giving you rest and giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. Talking about on uh, the west, or the west, I'm sorry, the east side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of val valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan towards the sunrise. That's on the east side. There's <clears throat> two and a half tribes there on the east side. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. That's the main theme of today. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we heeded Moses in all things, <clears throat> so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels, rebels against your command does not heed your words. In all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of a good courage. Lord, I pray that you'll bless the reading of this word. Lord, I pray that it will be inwardly digested. It will be in us. And that, Lord, when we leave this place... We will give your Holy Spirit control of our hearts so that we will be strong and have courage, and Lord, that we will go wherever you lead us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So for those who are new to us, you might wonder, why are we studying the Old Testament? Uh, people ask that sometimes. They go, well, we're Christians. You know, we're not 
under the Mosaic law, so why do we study the Old Testament? Well, we're not under the Mosaic law, and that's true, all right? But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, these things, he's talking about what happened to the Israelites, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. So as we work our way through Joshua, I want each of us in this room to be asking yourself, what does this exemplify in my walk with the Lord? You know, you're going to see things about the promised land, and they're all applicable to you. Paul says that they're applicable to you. We're to learn from this. We have different things that were promised to us, a different inheritance than the Jews had, but they're all promises of God that were made to us, and we will end today where I'm always talking about the promises of God. I'm going to show you all maybe eight or ten promises of, of God that God answers so that you can understand what I'm talking about when I say claim the promises of God. The promised land and how it applies to the spiritual journey in our lives. Doug and Sandy and I love to sing a song called Canaan's Land. And it alludes to, there's a lot of these old bluegrass songs that allude to Joshua going over into the land. But when we talk about it, we're talking about going to heaven, right? And I think we got messed up in our theology a little bit. They make great bluegrass songs and we enjoy singing them. But they're not exactly what Joshua is all about. It's not about going to heaven. This is about claiming the promises of God right here while we're alive. Amen? Talking about all the inheritances, inheritance, inheritances sorry, that we read in Ephesians chapter 1. It is a picture of our daily walk with Jesus. I think it's kind of interesting that many, many Christians teach and some want to learn that when we go into the promised land of our inheritances, meaning our spiritual inheritance, that we will have no struggles in our life. And this whole, this whole book of Joshua shows that when they were in the promised land, they had all kinds of struggles they went through and all kinds of problems they went through. And so it's false teaching to tell Christians, if you're living a sanctified life, if you're walking with the Lord, you're not going to have any problems. You will have a blessed life. You will have struggles, but the Lord promises, Doreen, that he'll take you through those struggles. He will be there with you when you're going through them. That's what we're promised. We are not promised that the struggles will be taken from us. We studied also in that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no temptation or trouble or trial that is not common to all men. We studied this in Pastor Larry's uh, class this morning. But God is faithful who will not suffer us to be tempted or tried above that we are able, but with every temptation or trial will make a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. That doesn't sound like a prosperity gospel to me. It sounds like we're going to have a life and a journey that is fraught with trouble, that is fraught with struggles, but that God will be with us every step of the way. Amen? If you don't believe me, let's look at what James, the brother of Jesus, said. Did you want to comment? Or you? I do. I want to give a testimony to the Lord Christ on Friday, and I think it's, it's what you're saying. Can you stand, please, to give that? So immediately when this 
Let's give God a hand. And, and I want visitors to know that's highly unusual that I let somebody jump up and, and give a testimony, but I, I know this person, and I know that whatever it is, I want to hear it. So anyway, uh, amen to that. Consider it all joy. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, said. My brothers and sisters, he's talking to us. We're his brothers and sisters, all right? He said, when you encounter various trials, that's troubles, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. This morning, Pastor Larry said, why are we tested? And everybody just stared at him. It's so why? That we will have endurance produced in us, spiritual muscles to get us through the moments when the horse gets ready to go crazy. You say, Lord God, in the name of Jesus, stop this horse. And if he hadn't, if he'd have given you the grace to have a ride you'd never forgot, right? <laughs> she and I have had a couple of those rides. Uh, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It just means that you'll be complete, that you'll be the mature Christian, David Kemp, that God wants you to be, that you will be in that Christ-likeness that Pastor Larry will preach on next week. So what went wrong with these people? There they were. Remember, it's been 14 months uh, since they left Egypt. And Sam, they end up at the base of Mount Sinai. And then we went through last week, whether it was God's idea or Moses' idea or the people's idea about how much should be explored. The bottom line is they went in on an exploration voyage. And when they got into the, into the land, they looked at things that God didn't tell them to go look at. We talked about that last week. They looked at how high the walls were. They looked at how big the people were. They looked at whether the land was good or bad. I think that's just so indicting. Uh, that's condemning, as if you don't know legal terminology, because they're saying, we want to go in. Moses says, go in and see if the land, the promised land that God has given us is good or bad. Does that sound like a good thing? Doesn't, it doesn't to me, Michael. Uh, and so there they were, 14 months. They send in these, these 12 guys that were from each of the uh, tribes of Israel. And as they went in, they began to measure everything. They began to, remember what we said last week, to walk by sight instead of walking by faith. Remember what I was saying? And they looked at all the problems that were there that seemed impossible for them to overcome. And what happened with that? They came back and only two gave a good report. And what's the name of the two? Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb and the younger generation are going to be the ones permitted to go into the land. The others will not be permitted to go in and claim what God had promised to them. And look what they said. They said, we saw Nephilim there, this, these giants. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. We were grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. What a miserably horrible verse that is. It says that we don't believe the promises of God. We don't believe that God can do what he says he will do. We believe that the people there are too big for us to overcome. And we saw ourselves as grasshoppers. And so our enemies saw us. Great lesson there about knowing who you are in Christ. If you do not know that you are more than a conqueror, Kathy Adamo, a trial will come your way. You will begin to view yourself as a grasshopper. And Satan has you right where he wants you. And he claps because you think you're a grasshopper. And you've forgotten that you are walking hand in hand with the king of the universe. You hear what I'm saying? You are not a grasshopper. We are more than conquerors through Christ. And so Joshua and Caleb spoke out for what was right. And this caused me to think, uh, through some things that I didn't maybe talk about Wednesday night. And what are these giants? 
What are the giants? There really weren't any giants in the land. There might have been a couple of big people. But the giants, Mike, Devonport, are those things that get into our mind that we see as insurmountable. That's what the giants are. They're the problems that we see and we think there's no way God can figure this problem out. All right? He's just not big enough, okay? He ain't big enough. And this can be all kinds of giants. It can be giants of uh, financial insecurity. It can be giants of loneliness, okay? It can be giants of a, uh, a, a problem with a child. It can be a giant of a marital problem. Did you think God is not big enough to solve this problem? What is it that I can do? How can I measure up the problem so that I can bring about the solution? They became paralyzed by fear, and I think of it as a progression. Their disbelief, okay, led to fear. And their fear then paralyzed them from doing anything. And it happens to us too. We just don't believe often that God will do the things that he said he'll do in our life. That disbelief then, then yields to fear, and then we're just we're possessed by fear. The worst decisions in my life were made out of fear. They really were. I think back to business. I made some, I'm not saying I got, you know, concerned and did some things, but when I was in pure state of fear, and, and the, these horsemen in here, Mike Qualey's not here today, but Cassandra can tell you, and Kathy Anderson, who deal with horses, when they get, and, and the Devonports, when they get afraid, they run through barbed wire fences and do all kinds of weird things, don't they? Nothing good happens when that horse is possessed by fear. It's out of control, and it's the same thing with us. We get possessed by a fear that we can't shake off, forgetting that God is the true trainer. He's the one that's trained us as the horse to do and behave like we're supposed to behave. Roadblocks, roadblocks to victorious living, as I say, begin with disbelief. They turn into the fear, and then we think, God isn't taking care of me. Where are you, God? God, you've forgotten me. Have you all ever prayed these, this prayer? If you have, you're right there with me. Okay, so two of us have prayed that prayer. The rest of the congregation is, there's three of us. Okay, I, okay, I got three. You know, we pray this thing thinking, God, do you even hear me now? I'm going through this horrible suffering. And we forget that God doesn't promise to take away the suffering. He promises to be with us through the suffering. It's really, really important. If we have our minds already made up about what God is going to say, how are we going to hear what he's going to say? We don't. We don't listen. We turn it off. We say, I don't want to hear you, God. I don't want to hear anything that you have to say to me. We are afraid. What are we afraid of? I'll tell you what we're afraid of. We're afraid of being hurt. Some of us have been hurt in our past, and we're afraid of experiencing that hurt again. We're afraid, I put here, hurting, suffering, or sinking. I like that. Sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to sink. I've been in business situations where I thought, I'm not going to get out of this. God, just give me my name because everything else that I own is about to go down the bathtub, uh, go down the tube, right? And it's difficult for us to accept that God uses our suffering to mature us spiritually. That's very hard for me. I think, well, if he loves me, why would he, why would he want me to suffer, you know? What he, he doesn't want me to suffer. He wants me to grow. And so it's in our suffering and it's in our pain that we cry out to the Lord and we find ourselves so close to him because we have nothing left. We come to the end of ourselves and we say, God, you're all I got. 
And then we somehow realized that he was always in our presence the whole time. Your meme said that yesterday. I read it. He was always there. It's not like I said, God, come back to me. Lord, come back to me. He's there right now. He's sitting in the pew next to Doreen. All right. And next to, okay, next to Randy too. <laughs> and he's inside of you. You brought him in with you. That's the Holy Spirit. You know, how great is our God, right? How great is our God? I love that song. So anyway, uh, Joshua practiced also Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And we're going to review that again. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to the way you see things, all your understanding, and all your ways. Do what favor? Acknowledge Him. Paul's going to help you. And He will do what? He will direct your path. That is a promise of God. You're wondering, what are the promises of God? That's a promise. Quickly, I want to look at some symbolism. We can see in, in this passage about Egypt and all of this. We looked at this Wednesday. I don't want to belabor this. Israel's slavery is a picture of our bondage to, to sin, okay, before we were saved. These are just some, some things here. Pharaoh's opposition, he didn't want them to get out of their slavery. He didn't want to get them to get out of their bondage. Who doesn't want you to be out of your bondage? The, huh? The enemy of our soul. I, I like that. Don't even dignify him with a name. The enemy of our soul. And then we see Moses as a deliverer. And he was a picture of one that delivered through the law. Are we delivered through the law? No way. We're not delivered through the law. law. We're, we're delivered through a Joshua figure. We talked Wednesday about how Joshua's name happened to be Yeshua which means God saves, okay? So Moses was the law. Joshua was Jesus, not Jesus, but he was a Jesus persona, okay? And Jesus was the one who made a new covenant with us, who frees us by himself, only by himself. And as we learned, church, when we studied Galatians, we learned that Jesus plus nothing equals what? I couldn't hear y'all. Yeah, and what do you add to Jesus? Nothing. You know, we get into so much trouble when we begin to add things to Jesus, and we want to do that as human beings, because then why? We have some control. Or some church leader has control, or thinks they have control. They have no control. Jesus plus nothing is everything. The Passover is a picture of the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts the same way the Jews applied it to the doorpost of their homes, okay? The exodus from Egypt is kind of a picture of us leaving the world behind when we come to faith. And, and Rabbi Daniel came and talked to us, remember, about when they passed through the Red Sea, and he talked about it being like a baptism, which was kind of cool because Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 10. We read that this morning in Sunday school. I think of the, the, the incident at the Red Sea that we preached on in November and December, really, when I did the Red Sea Rule series, it's just all of those things that beset us and come and that make us afraid and the chariots that come against us, the spear points, the bows and arrows and all that, a picture of satanic attacks against us. The Red Sea parting is that deliverance we get when we say, God, I have nowhere to go. I can't get out of this, God. And then he parts the Red Sea for us. The giving of the law at Sinai, which happened 50 days after that first Passover, is mirrored in the giving of the Holy Spirit, which is 50 days after the Passover, the night before Jesus went to the cross. So they got the law, we got the Holy Spirit, okay? 
And then the failure of Kadesh Barnea. After 14 months, they go and measure things up. They do it all by sight, David Kemp, instead of relying on the promises that God had made them. All they see is the giants. They see themselves as grasshoppers, and they get mired down and bogged down in Kadesh Barnea for 38 and a half years, give or take a month. That's a long time. So my question to you back when I preached two or three years ago was, are you stuck in Kadesh Barnea? If you are, maybe there's disbelief. There's some fear there that has trapped you in a place that God wants to take you out of, get you out of spiritual paralysis, and put you in the promised land that he desires for you. The wilderness years. Boy, we've all been in Bamidvar. That's Hebrew for in the desert. We get saved. We think someone told us we weren't supposed to have any problems. The next thing we know, we're roaming around in the desert. We go, how could it be this dry? Have you all ever said, I'm just kind of going through a dry time? If you've been through a dry time, Kelton's raising his hand way high, okay? You've gone through a dry time, you know, and it's just that experience where you're in the desert. You're not sure if it's ever going to rain again. It's how we're going to get here. So those of you all who are new to this area, long about August the 15th, we're going to look at each other and go, man, is it ever going to rain again? And we begin to beg God for rain like Kelton did that night on a Wednesday night. It hadn't rained in about six weeks, and we went outside, and it was pouring down rain, remember? And then we didn't even realize God had answered a prayer. Hey, look, it's raining. What a coincidence. We've just been inside praying. How foolish we are. How much we are like the children of Israel. Then the, take, then the crossing of the Jordan isn't about going to heaven uh, like we always sing about and love to sing about, but it's rededication to obedience and faith, resolving through the Holy Spirit I am going to go in, I am going into that land, I am going to fight the good fight, and I am going to rely on the Holy Spirit of God to empower me, encourage me, comfort me, and take me into whatever it is that God wants for me. Amen? Amen. Then the taking of the land. This is so important, guys. What's really, really interesting is Joshua and Caleb believed the promises of God. They really believed them. They believed them enough to say, Let's go and take the land, not just, hey, I believe the promises of God conceptually, all right, or metaphorically, or euphemistically. I mean, they said, I believe them, and we're walking in. He said, in three days, that's what the text told us, in three days, you're going to walk in, and you're going to take the land that God promised you a long, long, long time ago, and you fiddled around for 38 and a half years not taking what God promised. Now, listen, when you, Heather, take hold of the promises of God, and you do it through the power of the Holy Spirit, they turn into testimonies. And we can go through person by person, just like the testimony of a horse that had gone wild, all right, and testify because some of us believed the promises of God. We knew God was going to do it. He delivered, and then we have something to brag on God about. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. That's a triple amen there. I like that. So all those things happened to the Israelites. Whoops, happened. To the Israelites. They're examples to us of how we live out a Christian life. So we don't have to turn to the text because I already read it all, but I'm going to talk a little bit about some verses and point things out. In verse 1, we note that again, and I want to remind those who missed it, Joshua's original name wasn't Joshua. It was Hashua. And Moses named him Yahashua. That's Joshua, which in a later Hebrew, is Yeshua, okay? And it means God saves. Hashua means salvation. 
He changed his name to God saves because Moses could see in Joshua a person that believed that God saves. That's what I think. And he renamed him and gave him that name. Then in verse 2, the land is again mentioned, and it's mentioned 87 times in the book of Joshua. I may have got the count wrong, but that's what it looks like. It's 87 times that promise, that inheritance that had been promised to Abraham, then Isaac, then to Jacob, and then to Joseph, and God delivered on the promise. So we, too, have a spiritual inheritance. We don't receive an inheritance that's physical. God promises us in Ephesians chapter 1 a spiritual inheritance, and the first deposit on that is what, Michael Havens? You said it, it's the Holy Spirit. Michael said that yesterday at Bill's uh, sign-off, the cowboy Bill. And we get the Holy Spirit, and we can either rely on the Holy Spirit or we can rely on our flesh that still remains in us even after we're saved. And it's a tension that goes on in the heart of every believer. This isn't a salvation issue. It's a Christ-likeness issue. Because we know from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it is by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not of works so that any man, nobody can boast about it, all right? And that, that's what the Word tells us. It's a, it's a salvation that's granted solely by God's grace, His gift, His free gift. And that's how we receive that inheritance. We receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. Now, whether we're going to let the Holy Spirit take control in our lives is a separate issue, and that goes to sanctification, Larry will talk about next week, or the Christ-likeness that we let God work out in our life. Paul calls that working out your salvation through fear and trembling. He didn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling, but working it out, working out the ownership that you have and the inheritance that you've received. In two, we then see all the way through verse nine, I put verse nine, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. He then outlines this territory, and I think it's interesting. He says, you know, Joshua, I'm, no one's going to oppose you. You'll be like Moses, that I'll be with you. And then he says, I will not desert you or abandon you. And he tells Joshua three things. Be strong, be courageous, and be careful to follow the instruction, that word Torah means instruction, which Moses commanded, follow the word of God. That's what that means. And it's kind of interesting. He's, he tells him, don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right. You go, well, what does that mean? That means, guys, when you know what God's word says, don't waver. Devin, we talked about don't be a double-minded man. A double-minded man or woman is a fence straddler. They want one foot in the world. I think I want to be in the world. Oh, no, no, no. But I enjoy, the, I enjoy being with the kingdom folks. I enjoy doing the thing. I think I really desire the, the world. So God's telling him, stay focused, Joshua. You fa stay focused on what I commanded <clears throat> Moses in the law. And it's a word for us to stay focused on the Lord. Who does God keep in perfect peace? Him whose mind is stayed on him. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on thee. If you're disturbed in the night and you've got problems, you don't know what to do, you wake up and you say, how am I going to solve this, which I did a couple of weeks ago. God, it's like God whispered in my ear, you're not going to solve anything. Then I remembered the promises of God. And I began to say, Lord, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on thee. Lord, 
I want to fix my mind on you, but I'm not even sure what that means. So God, fix my mind on you right now where I can imagine and know that you're going to give me perfect peace. And the next thing I knew, it was morning. I woke up. Okay, You see how the promises of God work? Guys, just because I'm the pastor doesn't mean I don't wake up with that 2 o'clock in the morning worried about everything thing. Especially when we're getting ready to go on vacation. Oh, no. Or the batteries charged in the camper. I mean, you think of all kinds of crazy stuff. Is it leaking in the back? I mean, <laughs> how old are the tires? I mean, all these things will just worry us to death and become giants in our mind. Then this beautiful verse, he says, have I not commanded you? This, this, I think, is a promise of God that we can all take. These were promises to Joshua, but I don't think God's just given this message there to Joshua. He is saying, be strong, Christian. Be courageous, Christian. You know what courage means? It means you don't give up. Courage is to keep on keeping on. That's what my dad used to say. It just means you don't quit. You keep on keeping on. That's what courage is. And you be strong. God put the strength in you. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do everything through my own efforts. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You've got the strength. Where does your strength come from? It's Jesus. Okay, it's nothing in you. It's Him. And be courageous. Do not be terrified or dismayed. He's telling us that because we get terrified and we become dismayed. This prosperity teaching that says you'll never be terrified or dismayed is contrary to God's Word. We are little humans. We're going to get terrified and dismayed. You were terrified and dismayed when that horse decided it was going to go to Brazos County in about two minutes, right? Yeah, hang on for the ride. So look how it's repeated three times. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And he says to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. Has that ever been told to us as well? Yes. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And I talked about fear last week. Isaiah 41.10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Those guys are the promises of God. Get them into your heart if you can't. If it's too complicated for you to memorize them, go buy $3 pack of index cards and write down 20 promises of God and stick them in your pocket and pull them out. And when they're tattered, recopy them again. I have to do that now that I'm old. I can't remember anything. I'm not even sure I remember the name of this church, okay? I'm teasing for those who are listening. I'm not, I'm not that gone. Anyway, we then go on to read 10 through 18. And I want to say that this was a new generation this was not the old generation that disbelieved. This is real important. This is a whole new batch. Because remember how the others did disbelieve? They complained when they got thirsty. And we're not talking about complaining after six weeks in the desert. We're talking about three days. Then they complained in that short amount of time. We haven't had enough meat to eat. When we were back in Egypt, we had fish, we had pumpkins, we had leeks, we had garlics. We had all the good stuff. And nobody ever said, yeah, but we were slaves. We just forget the terrible way things were often when we were back in the slave market of sin. We forget about how, how horrible it was before we came to know him, don't we? And instead of realizing, man, I was, in, I was enslaved in something that I shouldn't have been in. 
These were new people. So my question today is, are you willing today, and I'm, and I'm not going to have a long sermon today because we're going to take time with the Lord's Supper to really get some good explanations. God speaks loudly to us in the passage telling us, we have an inheritance, we only need to receive it. It's like the kid that I know of a situation right now where a guy's a derelict, like a homeless person, and he's off in a homeless shelter somewhere, and he doesn't even know that he has a huge inheritance that his father left him. Isn't that wild? But that's how we are when we have the inheritance of the Lord and we don't take it and receive it and live it and live a victorious life. He's telling us that we will receive it and it's going to include rough water, but we're to be strong and courageous. And he's telling us, lastly, our response should be, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll go. So God has a place for each of you to do something and a purposeful work in the kingdom, okay? Don't be afraid to step out and do the work that God has called you to do. Don't do it. I mean, I mean, do what he calls you to do and be strong and courageous about it. Now, just a few promises of God. I wanted to teach you because I keep talking about the promises of God. This is just a few. Go Google promises of God and go get a giant pack of three by five cards, okay? Here's some for you today. God loves you unconditionally. Romans 5, 8 says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. You don't have to be good enough for God to love you. It is grace. If you want to get good enough to come to church, you'll never come. All right? We say this is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. So if you're not a sinner and if your cheese hadn't slid off your cracker a little bit, you're probably not going to be comfortable in this church. All right? What's the next promises of God? All things work together for good. For who? For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. All right? Not for everybody. People go, oh, God says everything will work out okay. He doesn't say that. He says that all things will work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You and I can never be separated from the love of God. Romans 8, 38 says that neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor angels, nor powers, nor rulers in high places, nothing can separate you from the love of God. People go, well, you as a Baptist, and I don't talk much about being a person that ascribes to Baptist theology. Do you really believe in once saved, always saved? And I say, you know what? When I had Faber, he was my son. Turn around so they can see you. There's no way I can make Faber now my unson, is there? When he's my son, he's my son. You can sit down, son. <laughs> he's my son. I can't undo that. That's how it is with us. We become his sons and daughters, and we're forever his sons and daughters. We may be errant. We may lose our crowns, meaning rewards that Dr. House is going to talk about on the 18th of July, but I'm always going to be his son. That is why I believe that, not because it's in some Baptist theological book. Amen? How about this? You are never alone. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then Joshua 1, 9 says exactly the same thing. We just read it. I think of that as the vitamin, vitamin B12 verse of Joshua, Joshua 1, 9. You are redeemed. You have an eternal home. That's John 3, 16. We can all recite that, or we should be able to. God formed you with intention. He knew you while you were even in your mother's what? He knew you there with an intention and a purpose. You know what? He knew you before that. He knew you before the beginning of time. Because God's not controlled by time. You are who the Bible says you are. 
That's a promise of God. You are not who the world says you are. You are who God says you are. You are more than a conqueror, Stephanie. All right? You are a good mother who loves her children in a godly way because you've submitted that to the Lord. Y'all follow me? You are not. The, the world might say you're a kook, you know. You're over there and growing vegetables and kids out running up and down the thing in diapers. And, hey, you're doing exactly what God wants you to do right in that little faith community we have. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. He has summoned you by name. And not only that, he's got another name for you, Sam. When you go to heaven, Sam's got a whole new name. I don't know what it is. Faber's got a whole new name. It's just so cool. God continues a few verses later in 43.4 saying, Since you are precious and honored in my sight because I love you. Guys, these are the promises of God. When you don't feel loved, you pull that out and say, God, you've promised me in your word you love me. Lord, help that somehow sink into my soul where I believe it, where I really live it, where I live victoriously and I don't feel abandoned, okay? God's plan for your life is not cursing but blessing. Psalm 103, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And let me count all of the benefits. It's a great song we used to sing. He gives you all these benefits. Learn what the benefits of God are. And then as we already quoted today, you can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. Philippians 4.13. If that's not enough, Google promises of God. I did it today and it's like a whole bunch of them. Okay, I'm not sure how many it was. But that is the message today. Guys, wherever he leads, let's follow. Amen? He will give you the strength. He will give you the courage. Because his Holy Spirit resides right in you. And he never leaves you. He'll never leave you or forsake you no matter what you do. What an amazing picture of grace. We would have all quit on one another. Larry's actual topic next week is why is it so hard to love unconditionally? Something like that, isn't it? You know, we're going to talk about that. Why is it? It's because we're not God. That's why. I don't mean to steal your thunder. But God loves us unconditionally. He loved us so much, he went to the cross and gave his blood and his body for us. So we're going to commemorate that today. I'm going to ask, two, uh, in our bylaws, it requires uh, an ordained pastor or deacon to uh, do our uh, communion. So I'm going to ask Dr. House, who happens to be an ordained Baptist pastor, as well as Michael Havens, if you all will come up today and do that. They agreed to, to take a little pressure off me because we had a full day yesterday with Bill's funeral. Guys? Or, yeah, still morning. Uh, Faber asked us to um, uh, officiate the Lord's Supper this morning, so it's a great pleasure and honor and uh, to participate in the participation of the Lord's Supper. I just want to say that um, uh, Dr. House is going to give you explanation it's plural uh, to the meaning of, of the Lord's Supper. But I just want to make a couple of statements to start with. Um, and actually, I'd like to pray before we even do that. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word that has come to our spiritual ears and that our eye, our spiritual eyes have been opened and, and that we've uh, participated in the bringing of your word. And it's already blessed us. And... Um, Thank you for uh, allowing us to be here in your house today. 
And Father, we just look forward to um, participating in your supper. And uh, we look forward to Dr. House's rendition of uh, the meaning of that. And Lord, um, just to your presence in our lives. So we say, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, um, the Lord's Supper is an important element in our Christian faith. It is a visual representation of the good news in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is, well, it reminds us of his death, but it also reminds us of our glorious hope of his return. Our participation in it strengthens our faith through fellowship, not only with Christ, but with one another, with other believers. And it strengthens us spiritually. I want to say this. Awareness of our sins should not keep us away from the communion table, but it should drive us to participate in it. This is not a meaningless ritual. Instead, it is a sacrament given to us by our Lord Jesus to help strengthen our faith in Him, in His Father, through the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is very important. It's one of the two ordinances of the church. And these are both given by Jesus. And uh, it helps to have some understanding of why Jesus actually did this. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have instituted for us, but these have very special importance. And what is interesting to me is that when you see Jesus about to go through probably the worst thing you could imagine in your life, Jesus recoiled from, from uh, death and, and torture, I mean, these are not things you look forward to. And Jesus is a man, he's, he's dealing with that. And so the night that that was going to occur, it says that they had a supper together. And in this supper, it was a very special one because it was called the Passover, a time that Jews had commemorated for a long time from the time of Moses when they were delivered from Egypt and the slavery that was accompanying that. And so he gave them something to remember year by year by year to recall uh, those things that had happened to them before. And this was practiced all the way to the time of Jesus and even today, in which they would get together and they would have a certain kind of meal. And each of these elements we're not going to go into, but these various things that they, they uh, drank and things that they ate, uh, look back to the bitterness of Egypt and to the deliverance of God. And so it says right toward the end of that, when he was to be betrayed, remember that uh, Judah sort of left. He had things to do, and Jesus sent him on his way. And then he took the elements that we think of as a fruit of the vine and unleavened bread because they were in a hurry. And these all are very important symbols. Now, it's interesting to me that these things that are important, particularly the Lord's Supper that we're going to be talking about, some people call the Eucharist, which is perfectly fine. It's from a Greek word, which means to give thanks, 
which is in fact what he did. But this thing that we practice divides us. Interesting. Uh, the church comes together to participate in the Lord's Supper, and yet there's a lot of difference of opinion among Christians as to the nature of the elements. I mean, do these turn into the body and blood of Christ? Are they something in between that some people argue that it's not really the body and blood, but it, uh, it, it uh, somehow mystically becomes that uh, in another sense that's never really quite explained? And then, of course, we have the standard uh, view that we would practice and the fact that these elements are not the, the body and blood of Christ itself, but these are symbols reflecting upon that body and blood. And one statement that Jesus says, often as you do it, you do it in remembrance. And so you have some who would argue then that it should be done every, every Sunday. And some get around to it when we get around to it and everything in between. So we have something that should bring us together, sometimes divides the church. But we need to get to the understanding the meaning of these, these events. See, I don't think that the Bible teaches that these elements are special in themselves and that somehow it's mystical that when you take these, they really are symbols, just like the same way in the Lord's Supper. Uh, when they had the symbols they ate, they weren't something mystical. They were something that reminded them uh, based on the nature of what they were. And so we would argue, I think, that these symbols that we take today, when we take them to ourselves, our mind should reflect then upon what they mean. And so that's what we do. And Paul the Apostle uh, he wrote to a church at Corinth, the church that was at Corinth, and they seemed to be trying to practice the Lord's Supper again, like the night, you know, they had a meal before, and then they had, this, then they had the elements that they took. And so the church at Corinth, they also had a supper before, and uh, seemingly the elements afterwards, and yet they were involved in complaining and back, backbiting and fighting each other, and that doesn't demonstrate the unity of the church. That shows the disunity of the church uh, over perspective. So I'm not going to read this whole passage to you. But Paul says the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took these things. And, and so when we do this, it's special. It's not mystical. And I don't think spiritual power comes through taking these. But I do believe there is something to be said for the fact that even though I don't take it mystically, I do believe that when we take it and our mind goes to the reason for the supper, that we are spiritually built up. I really believe that's so. Uh, There's someone like John Calvin argued. Uh, not that they turned into something like that, but the remembrance of that brings a spiritual relationship with God. Because I think about this bread is talking about Jesus' broken body. And this wine or grape juice or whatever is used, this is telling us something about Jesus' shed blood. And if our focus gets on those things instead of what's around us, and we, you know how it is sometimes when you really get focused on something, the difference between being sort of haphazard? When our minds focus on these elements and we think, what has God done for us? 
The Israelites should have done the same. What did God do for them? He delivered them from a, a, a bondage, an oppression. And what did their minds get focused on? Everything else. They lost it. Well, it was just quail. They complained about everything. And so their minds got away from the purpose of the, even the Passover to reflect every year upon God's deliverance. And we too, if we reflect upon this bread, it's nothing special in itself, but it talks about something that's very special. Christ's body was broken for me. And this juice, this fruit of the vine, there's nothing special about it is that it helps me remember Christ's blood was shed for me. And if we do it as Jesus says, as much as you take these things, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. Which means that every one of us, when we take this today and think about these things, our minds should not be totally focused on that. We, we focus on the death. We focus on Christ's work. And then our mind lifts up and thinks about he's coming again. And so uh, these are special events. We don't just do this perfunctorily. We do this because it brings us to thinking again about Jesus. Um, Jesus instituted the Passover meal, uh, everyone, the upper room with the disciples. And just as Passover represented and uh, celebrated their deliverance from slavery, slavery in Egypt, so uh, God's supper represents and, and celebrates deliverance from sin by his death. And so he, he said, do this in remembrance of me, so how do we how do we remember Christ in the supper? Well, we remember by thinking about what he did and why he did it. And that he did it specifically for you, specifically for me. I want to I just want to impart something here that I felt real impressed yesterday to, to share at the very end of, of, of Bill's send-off. He and I had a conversation, and we, de and we determined between the two of us that there were two most important things. One was that when Christ died and shed his blood, that he had done it, and I said, for me, just for me. Bill said, he did, just for me. So we, we, we kind of had a little, a little tiff there, and it was, it was just so interesting and so precious. And we also determined that the second thing was the impartation of the Holy Spirit as a deposit for us looking forward. And that that in turn allowed us, afforded us an opportunity to forgive. And I shared with him that the Lord had no audible voice but had, had shared with me that forgiveness was as easy as looking in the mirror. And that's what we have to do. We just look in the mirror 
And when we see ourselves the way we really are and know that God truly sees us beyond all measure, who would we be not to forgive? And so those, that was kind of Bill and I's parting little testimony to one another, and it was just so precious. And I just thought that it really, it really pertains here that, you know, we're meant to uh, not judge one another. We're asked in communion to judge ourselves, to look inwardly and, and view ourselves as Christ, our Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit would view us. And there are no imperfections in his view of us. And that is beyond everything. And so that comes only by way of the blood of Jesus. And that's about what we're, we're about to participate in and his broken body. And that's what he did. But why he did it is personally for you and for me. Just as Bill and I said, boy, when you grab hold of the fact that of all of us, Jesus did what he did, and he did it just for you, if not for anyone else. And, of course, we know he did it for all of us, but the fact that he did it for you personally, boy, that's when you step into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ and it radically changes everything. Amen? Amen. Let's have the deacons come forward. And, and um, we said that Jesus instituted this in the upper room. But as Dr. House pointed out, Paul spoke to us in Corinthians. as He spoke to the Corinthian church. And he said, as he began with them, and we begin today in, re, in reception or receiving these elements, he instructed us that we're not to participate unworthily. And as I just shared, that's by taking a moment or two to allow God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, to look into our hearts, examine us, and afford us the opportunity of doing just that same thing ourselves. And as that takes place, how many know as God's viewing you, he sees you perfect. He, he sees you through the blood of his son, Jesus. And that's what we're participating in today. He was saying that so we would take that moment, so that we would take that time in receiving communion. So we do it through healthy introspection. And we make it through making inward confession. So as you take that moment today, affording the Holy Spirit to view you, you view, viewing you through the Holy Spirit's eyes, if you happen to notice something, just release it. Give it to God. It's no longer there. If you have unforgiveness, just release it. Let it go. This is about today and today forward. Nothing yesterday. If for some reason something comes up, an unresolved issue in your heart, 
give it to the Lord. He's willing to take it. Doing this, these very things, remove the barriers that affect our relationship with others, but most importantly with God our Father. And this is done through Christ Jesus. So as I said before, awareness of any sin or any imperfections shouldn't keep us from the communion table. It should make us want to run, amen, to it. So I'm going to read. Paul said to the Corinthian church, And as I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I'm going to have to have my glasses. Pardon me. Not only can you not see, you can't hold on to them. Um, On the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks to it, and Father, we give you thanks for this communion that we take today. He broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And let's take the bread. I do want to participate. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. He also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate that. Larry, if you want to come out and lead us. I'm going to go ahead and have you stand in a minute. We're going to have our blessing, and then we're going to sing. Today is uh, July the 4th. Oh, yeah. Sorry, we're going to sing first and pass our offering plate. Sue, she reminded me. <laughs> 